Hello, friends. This is a serialization of Anton's Bark by Otto Loser. It's the third of the Otto Loser mysteries, brought to you as an audiobook by Migration Books. Leaving is a life. It was the end of the age of books. The old man wrote his on a laptop in his favorite cafe. His engagement with the keyboard was sporadic and cumbersome. He could no longer type quickly. Had his thoughts been visible, though, they would have looked like a spray of sparks, bright particles in mauves and oranges gushing from his ears. To observe him for any length of time would have been to miss this, unless, as an onlooker, you might be tempted to look at your own thoughts. Because there was no continuity to his typing, the man's attention operated like a spell about to be broken. One moment the focus was apparent, then it was gone. When it came to writing books, he told himself he was over the hill yet there was nothing else he could do but write. From time to time he would sneak a look at others in the cafe, as if he was expecting something exciting to happen. He'd been writing all his life. What spewed from his brain was hot nonsense. It fizzed on so many levels that his ideas were forced to jostle and reposition, like a cue getting soaked in a downpour. None of it made sense, although it may be said that when it comes to thinking, I know of no stable measure for what ought to make sense. It was only by virtue of the books he wrote that the writer was able to harness the tendency of his thoughts to erupt and combine so senselessly. In that churning, during the month of February 2019, he hit upon reasons to imagine how my fate would develop. I was still living in England. He'd written about me before, but so much had changed I hardly knew myself anymore. The upheavals in my life had made it feel as though I had no choice but to abandon my career as a lawyer. This was as difficult to do as I imagined it might be. To leave everything behind should have been a relief. I'd done it in the past. On this occasion, though, the exhilaration left me exhausted. I was in no position to be faced with the disasters that awaited me. Intent on the turmoil he wanted to steer me through, it was on a snowy day early that winter that the old man began writing his latest book about me. The book was to be called Otto in Flames. The first words that came to him were, It was dark. To write these words felt like an epiphany. It was a force beyond his control, urging him on like an emotion. He imagined me waking up in the middle of the night. It led to the formulation of a sentence which gently introduced what was to become the nucleus of his story, and mine. He was awake, but drifting in an unaware world. Meet Anton Matins. It seemed to him that his latest book had begun with a jolt from somewhere else. 
in his mind, I'd taken on new characteristics. The unaware world he imagined me inhabiting was a complete surprise to both of us. As a professional man, I was focused. I didn't tend to cast myself adrift. This departure in Anton's depiction of me would grow out of all proportion. It would press us both into a plethora of visions and sounds so inexplicable in their origin that Anton could reasonably begin to believe that he was being led by a mysterious power. The notions that ordinarily collided in his brain were themed and repetitive, like minimalist music. He would have said he was incapable of departing radically from the grind his perceptions normally held him to. Yet the strangest ideas began to occur to him, and each time they did, they shifted the tone and measure of his outlook. Nor were they like ordinary ideas. It was more like something really happening. Anton would end up calling these special moments his immersions. They came in flashes to begin with, and they were always thrilling. It was a revitalizing experience to be the recipient of so many insights. Yet while this made him feel young again, he wasn't equipped to work out the significance of what he was imagining. By the time he was lured into the writing itself, it was too late. Anton was too captivated to put a stop to it. His first immersions concerned my reasons for wanting to return to Vienna. My new traits developed gradually and were accompanied by voices Anton thought I could hear too. In those early passages in the writing, when something unusual or striking occurred to him, you might see it as a physical transformation. It would register in a widening of his eyes. He would roll his eyes. He would nod and contract certain facial muscles to produce a grimace. What he was trying to express was his astonishment. A feeling of absurdity was the leitmotif that followed the inception of each fresh idea he had. For the most part, he wrote in his favorite cafe. He could be seen there each day sipping his coffee, with his laptop open in front of him. Yet it was when Anton looked away from his writing and stared at someone that he would be most forcibly struck. If he thought it absurd, it was because the conveyance of something so new and stimulating to his already ingrained schema always seemed such a mystery. It wasn't long after he began writing Otto in Flames that he started hearing things. The sounds infiltrated the otherwise pleasant ambience of the cafe, as if everybody around him was talking more energetically. The talking would deepen so that it became more like a rumble. In those early days, the rumble would turn into a horse at the gallop. It was out of that sound of galloping that Anton began to detect the strains of a popular song. Sung with gusto from far away, it turned out to be the lilting chorus from My Favorite Things. Soon he could hear this combination of sounds as clearly as he perceived the waiters and waitresses asking if he wanted more coffee. 
over those galloping hooves, he could even hear the anger in the singer's voice. Each new sound Anton apprehended came to him as if it had drifted over the rooftops and was being called out by a benefactor. The phenomenon could not be explained as merely inspirational. It wasn't even hallucinatory. It was real. Yet Anton was the only customer in the cafe who knew anything about it, which meant there was nothing he could do or say to draw anybody else's attention to it. It was through these increasingly addictive immersions that the words he needed to write about me came to him. He found that by listening carefully, he could compose short but incongruous sentences, such as the following passage. She had a long dress on, like a cocktail dress. She was there, but she wasn't there. Although he was awake now, he was prepared to accept that the woman was still close enough to hit him with a metal pole. Just as the sounds Anton was hearing didn't belong in the cafe, so the writing that came to him was out of place as well. All of it ended up being wedged into the first chapters of his latest book. Not that he assumed that any combination of words that came to him could truly represent what was being called out, nor could he begin to guess where it was all coming from. All he knew was this. The most significant mental leaps, whatever they were, didn't occur as perfectly formed sentences. Rather, the audible accompaniments to the process of writing resolved into what seemed like nonsensical words and phrases that only became meaningful later on. The words would creep into view in fragments, like wreckage. Before the sentences themselves could be constructed, they had to be realized and puzzled over. Reminiscent of the staggered visions that linger towards the end of a troubled sleep, by the time an idea had taken shape in the writer's brain, all trace of its origins had disappeared. There was something else that happened early in February 2019, which goes some way to explaining what Anton was dealing with. It happened in his favorite cafe during the course of an ordinary afternoon. As I've mentioned, when it all got too much for him, he tended to look away from his writing. To disrupt the mental clatterbag his immersions were causing him always brought instant relief. He would fumble for his spectacles and pretend to study neutral objects in the foreground. When his regard alighted on someone who looked interesting, he would rest his confused gaze on them for a time and stroke his bushy beard. This was how he found himself admiring the profile of a classically beautiful woman. She was reading a book. Her hair was black, glossy, and imperfectly arranged. She wore it in a bun tied with a blue ribbon. She had a long, straight nose, leaning towards a puckered mouth. There may have been the shadow of a dimple between her chin and her mouth. There was a good deal of poise and concentration in her posture. 
The way she was holding her book, leaning towards it, made Anton think she hadn't yet realized how uncomfortable she must be. She was so completely absorbed by what she was reading that she remained in the same pose long enough for a detailed likeness to be sketched. Anton's observations of the woman were interrupted by an irrational thought. It was one of many he was having at the time. He went on to make compulsive use of this one. It came in the form of a rule. Noses that pull up to the eyes suggest a secretive nature, while noses that lean towards the mouth indicate candidness and sometimes naivety. Because of the position of the woman's nose in relation to her mouth, Anton believed she was sincere. Her full engagement as a reader, the untidy arrangement of her hair, as well as the understated but elegant yellow shade of her blouse, were all about to produce other lines of speculation when he heard a new, chiming sound. It was like church bells ringing out over wheat fields in the distance. As he continued to stare, the chiming grew louder. It resonated in frequencies that made the table he was sitting at shudder. Although it was mesmerizing, what was happening was too nebulous to be recorded in writing straight away. The reality of bells somewhere far off causing Anton's table to shudder was too jarring. Yet, somehow he felt that what was happening was an idea about where his ideas were coming from. The woman hadn't said or done anything, but he believed he understood exactly what she meant. She was his muse. He rolled his eyes. He twisted the muscles of his left nostril. He did these things to indicate the mild revulsion he felt at having overlooked such an important yet glaringly obvious fact. As the peal of bells began to fade, a short saying trickled onto his laptop screen. He was barely aware he was writing it. But for the fact that Anton only ever numbered his chapters, what was written on the screen might have come in useful as a title. In addition to the absurdity of recalling something that should have been obvious to a child, the phrase that came to him now, as the spearhead to a notion that would eventually sweep him off his feet, was, Leaving is a life. Goddess Nine. Anton had been writing for so long that we might say he lived through the books he wrote. Because he was an early riser, he began shortly after dawn. During this period of the day, he liked to drink black tea from a Russian samovar with a squeeze of lemon. Towards the middle of the morning, his habit was to continue writing in his favorite cafe. Once established in his usual corner, he would build on whatever he'd harvested in the dawning hours of his endeavors. No matter what he imagined about me, it was always suggested out of a few solitary words or phrases which seemed to come from nowhere. It was as if the ideas he needed would splash spontaneously onto a surface, and all he had to do was scoop them into a net. 
they became the clues to a new book he felt compelled to painstakingly unpick, sentence by sentence, until the text felt complete. Because of the mysteriousness of the origins of the key words and phrases that inspired this writing, he maintained that he only knew what he was thinking about me after he'd written it down. While he appeared to be in control of the structuring of his sentences, the fact that what he wrote emanated from a place he had no knowledge of remained perplexing. It was the sounds nobody else could hear that gave Anton the answers he needed. As the product of an older, more idealistic generation, his fantasies were steeped in myth. You might say he was eccentrically fond of the ancient Greeks. This is why it occurred to him that what was happening could be explained by conceiving of the beautiful woman reading her book in the cafe as a muse. The ancients had no difficulty when it came to discussing the origins of the most powerful and unbidden ideas. All of those eureka moments, the life-changing ones, were said to have been gifted by the daughters of Zeus. While Anton was certainly no scholar, his idiosyncratic fascination for Greek antiquity made it possible for him to associate the legend of the Muses with the auditory flows that came to reveal each new chapter of Otto in Flames. Within a week of first spotting the woman, he'd reacquainted himself with the names and qualities of each of the nine Muses and was writing thousands of words every day. He wasn't trying to imagine why I should want to give up my career as a solicitor in England. Nor did he reflect on what was compelling me to go back to Vienna after being away for so long. All Anton needed to know now was the name of the muse conveying it all to him. On being drawn too deeply into this conceit as the source for his ideas, were you to ask him casually about Otto in Flames, he would have taken you directly to the muses and do it as if he'd been personally acquainted with them. Not that he considered himself privileged or in any way improved by his newfound link with the ancient past. Far from it. Anton would have preferred his routines. He was essentially a lonely man. His ordinary preoccupations, the bedrock of a recognizable outpouring, were the habits of a long and fruitful life. Fast approaching his 77th year, Anton was as complete as his existence could make him. Very like easy listening, his daily thoughts had become a soundscape of familiar murmurs and fluctuations. If anything, the patterns his thoughts produced was a well-established dirge, much like the creases that stretched over his face as if from the impact of his eyes. Squaring up to the problems his imaginings presented him with, Anton decided that there were two ways of looking at it. Either the ancients had invented the nine deities with their miraculous powers so they could bestow their gifts on lowly mortals and it was all a quaint oral tradition, or it was the goddesses themselves who had ensured that lowly mortals would never forget them. It wasn't long before he came to genuinely believe the latter. You may have excused him by thinking he was getting on in years. If he was so convinced something immortal was trying to get into his head, you may have suggested that he speak with his doctor. But this writer certainly didn't need more pills. He already had plenty. 
when he was struck by an outlandish notion, not of this world, to do with the direction my life was taking, he didn't assume, as many of us might, that he was suffering from a condition requiring medical intervention. Rather, Anton came to interpret it as evidence of another personal encounter with a Greek goddess. I perfectly understand the reservations many will have about the conclusions he came to about the origins of his ideas. It may be said that he mused over much. It may be said that he was the victim of a wandering mind. While all of this is undoubtedly true, it misses the point. I should like to confirm that what Anton was perceiving was indeed being revealed to him by forces beyond his control. He wasn't making any of it up. Something truly mysterious had begun to happen. He didn't know it then, but by listening to what his muse had to say, he was riding us both into the expansions of a new reality. And so, there came a moment during that strange month of February 2019, when the babbling treadmill of the writer's mind arranged itself into a haunting framework of sounds, indicating something wholly unexpected was on its way. Peeling with surprises, you might even agree that what he was hearing was the sounds the muses made, should you care to listen carefully. Early one morning, before heading off to his favorite cafe, he found himself puzzling over a passage he'd drafted concerning the collapse of an ancient temple. This temple was recognizably the Parthenon, but on closer inspection it had the intimacy of an experience Anton once had, visiting Mexico with his wife. He thought he'd finished writing the beginning of his book, but in light of what he'd just come up with, he felt compelled to go over it again. I was still standing at the top of a set of stone steps. I was still in the dream I was supposed to have had in the first chapter of the book. But now, as Anton imagined my dream afresh, he saw his muse behind me and typed the following words. There was someone else between the pillars. Even though one of them was him, he could see both of them with his eyes closed. The other person was a woman. His mug of black tea sent up a lazy peal of steam. He could hear his wife in the loft. The noises she made sounded like muffled but regularly paced words, as if she might be saying a prayer. He hoped she was, because the sounds in his head felt like the walls tumbling down. Although he was about to lose himself in the void he thought of as an immersion, he was able to type the next two sentences exactly as they came to him. Not the pink and golden flames. Not the woman. Now he pictured me running down the temple steps. I was going as fast as I could. It was like being born, but knowing it. I had to get away from myself. Fused with this new vision of me running down steps were the rumbles of two mighty explosions followed by the whistles of a strong wind. The disturbances were so powerful that a fountain pen rolled along Anton's desk. It dropped to the floor. A voice in his head shouted the words, Why me? He heard it clearly. It was the voice of outrage, 
All he could think to write next was, None of it would have seemed real, nor would he have been able to see himself running as fast as he could, taking the steps two by two. The disturbances worsened. Anton became frightened. The reverberations were inside him, but they were also around him. They caused everything to happen, from the collapse of the temple to the ripples on the surface of his tea. When he actually saw a rider far away in the mountains, Anton no longer knew if he was thinking. It didn't feel like thinking. It felt like being in those mountains. He only just prevented himself from falling out of his chair. It was as the rider galloped down a ridge that he heard the singing. It drifted over the canyon. When the dawn bites, came the musical shout from afar. When the Anton was about to call up to his wife when the bubbles on the surface of his tea popped. It produced a sensation that felt like the opening of a cave. All of this passed too quickly to process, and the shimmering became still again. Anton had grabbed the edge of his desk. It took some minutes to let go again. He opened a drawer to rummage for his pink pills. He took two with his tea. <clears throat> Whatever his muse had just tried to communicate to him, he couldn't see how it had anything to do with his latest book about me. It seemed too disconnected. Rather than ignore it, though, he decided that all of it should be catalogued and assessed. That night, he began his handwritten journal detailing these anomalies he was experiencing. For as long as he could, Anton would make it his business before bed to jot down what he experienced in his immersions, then do some light reading and try to get some sleep. But in the weeks leading up to that fateful day of the 18th of February, he hardly slept at all. Sensing instinctively that he may never understand the apparitions being visited on him daily, he tossed and turned while his wife did all their sleeping. By the time he'd made himself believe unquestioningly in the powers of the muses, he was being swamped with all sorts of phantasma about a rider in the high mountains, trying to find refuge in a cave, which of course had nothing to do with me at all. You may have gathered that over the years, Anton had become an unfocused thinker. Whenever he wrote something with precision, he would sigh because he loved nothing more than to be precise and it was such a rarity. One significant entry in his nighttime journal, written shortly before he vanished, suggests that he had more than an inclination about what was going to happen to him. I imagine him sighing quite a bit as he wrote this. Although a great deal happens everywhere in the world, you should not expect the best ideas to occur in any kind of museum. Museums are logically arranged and they are locked at night. There is something anarchic about ideas. But especially not the expect the ones. best ideas to occur in any kind of museum. Museums are logically arranged and they are locked at night. 
There is something archaic about ideas, but especially the more profound ones. They thrive in the dark. Terpiscore shows up in the moonlight when people love to revel. She will spend the silver hours choreographing every dance the Oi, Terpe prefers the great outdoors as well. As the muse of music, she is the soil each dance grows in and the spur for all a person's movements and gestures. has her divinity in the erotic. She is irresistible. I love Talia more though. She wears a smiling mask. She tells a wonderful tale with a sense of joy that is too easily forgotten but just as easily recalled. When I laugh uncontrollably, it's Talia's voice that I hear and the face of a genius that I see. In fact, the genius I see is my wife. None of these muses will have come to me in sight or sound. They will all be too busy with others and I wouldn't have known how to recognize them anyway. Of all of the sisters, it is the unworldly Urania, the philosopher's muse, who came into my life. Urania is the muse for those who gaze at the stars and wonder what is going on. She loved to surprise. The surprise she gave me is that everything I imagine comes true.